0: But when that person is your parent, it can damage your emotional growth and the ability to trust. Joining us today to talk about how we can understand and heal from narcissistic family abuse is Dr. Carol McBride. Dr. McBride is a licensed marriage and family therapist who specializes in treatment of trauma. She is the author of several books, including Will the Drama Ever End? Untangling and Healing from the Harmful Effects of Parental Narcissism. Welcome, Dr. McBride. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Joan. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So, Doctor, let's begin by defining a narcissist. What type of person would fit that description?
1: Okay. um, So, first of all, we we have to look at narcissism, I think, as a spectrum disorder. So, um, I'm going to talk about the nine traits that are in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of a full-blown narcissist. But I think we have to keep in mind that because it's a spectrum disorder, there's a continuum, right? So at the low end of the continuum, as you think about these traits, we can all have some of these traits. And then at the other far opposite end is the full-blown narcissistic personality disorder. So the more traits someone has along the continuum, you know, the more problems they're going to have in their parenting, relationships, life, etc. But the uh, Diagnostic Manual list 9 major traits of the personality disorder, so I'll just give them to you quickly. Um, One is a grandiose sense of self-importance. Two is preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love. Three believes they are special and unique and should only associate with high-status people or institutions. Four requires excessive admiration. Five has a sense of entitlement, like unreasonable expectations of others or favorable treatment or automatic compliance with what they want. Uh, Six is interpersonally exploitative, meaning taking advantage of others to achieve their own ends. Seven, the big one, lacks empathy or the ability to tune into the emotional world of others. Eight is envious of others or believes others are envious of them. And nine shows arrogance, haughty behaviors, or attitude.
0: So if a person, you just described nine traits, how would you know if a person is a narcissist? Because any one of these, most people have at least one. So how then can we tell if we are dealing with a narcissist?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, Joan. Because I I think there I think there's sort of a general understanding of, in in the way people talk about narcissism and in our culture. And a lot of people think it's just someone who's boastful or arrogant, or they they're all about me. They talk about themselves all the time, and you know those things are annoying, certainly. But they're not the things that bother me or what I write about particularly. Because they don't. That's not what really hurts people. You can just stay away from those kind of people. But Um, I think the real cornerstone and the red flags to watch out for is the lack of empathy and the inability to tune into the emotional world of other people. Um, Those two things, I think, are the biggest. I also think um, sense of entitlement and interpersonally exploiting others are, Mm -hmm. are two other big cornerstones.
0: You know, Doctor, when when we talk about narcissism, we always or we usually tend to refer to it as someone we're in a relationship with. And I had never really given thought about having a narcissistic parent. And as you're talking, I can't even imagine what it must be like for a child to grow up with a parent that lacks empathy for that child.
1: Yes. Yes very hard to get your head around, <laughs> particularly if you haven't lived it, right? Mm-hmm. But the mantra in what I call the narcissistic family, which means being led, the family being led by one or two narcissistic parents, the mantra is the parents' needs take precedence over the children's needs. So in a in a normal healthy family, you know, the parents are there to take care of the children. In the narcissistic family, that hierarchy is reversed, and the children are there to take care of the parents, to make the parents happy, to make the parents look good. Um, So for little children growing up with the lack of emotional tune-in and empathy, you know, leaves them with lots of devastating effects, which is why I wrote this book.
0: Doctor, what do you believe is that the root cause of narcissism?
1: I think it's caused from the trauma the parents had. And I often get the question, well, does that mean any of us who grew up in a narcissistic family or had a narcissistic parent, does that mean we're all going to be narcissists? And the answer to that is no. But usually it is caused from trauma. And then if people don't wake up or embrace that, embrace that trauma, a lot of people parent, as you know probably, um, the way they were parented. And so that's why we see it kind of getting passed down the generations, because, you know, they don't stop to think, do I really want to do the same thing to my kids that was done to me?
0: What type of emotional damage happens to a child who doesn't get the nurturing that he or she needs in order to become a healthy, functioning adult?
1: Well, they end up with internalized negative messages, like, I'm not good enough, I'm not lovable, I'm not worthy. Um, they grew up with kind of a sense of emptiness because they didn't get their emotional tanks filled. Um, They grew up with crippling self-doubt because their feelings were not validated and acknowledged and therefore their reality was not acknowledged. Um, Oftentimes we see adult children of narcissists uh, having complex post-traumatic stress disorder, definitely a lack of sense of self. Um, Oftentimes, people come to therapy with this issue, have anxiety because they didn't grow up in a consistent environment, depression, hypervigilance, shame because they carry the family shame because they they think it was all their fault. Um, They have difficulty trusting because they have impaired trust because they couldn't rely on their parents to take care of them properly. Um, oftentimes, they have problems with relationships, and definitely an impaired emotionally emotional development um, emotional development delay. Not necessarily um, not not completely suppressed, but um, impaired.
0: So because these children grow up to have that lack of emotional development, I would think that they might even become people pleasers or wanting to take care of people because that's what they know. Are they more apt to attract the narcissist into a relationship?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, too, because I I believe that when we grow up in a narcissistic family, we learn it's a great training ground for codependency. And codependency is, I'm going to take care of you to the exclusion of taking care of myself. So oftentimes, adult children will be, you know, have that level of uh, codependency that they have to work on in treatment. And then do they attract narcissists? Yes, sometimes that's the case, um, because we tend to be attracted to the familiar until we work our own recovery.
0: And a narcissist can be extremely charming.
1: Absolutely. That's where, you know, in recovery, you really work on learning what to watch for and learning for the, you know, what, to, what red flags, you know, to, to be aware of.
0: And what are some of those red flags, Doctor?
1: Well, again, I always go back to the lack of empathy, the inability to allow someone to be themselves, the inability to tune into someone else's feelings, always wanting control, always wanting things to go their way, Um, you know, as well as some of the grandiosity.
0: Is the first step in recovery and and in healing, is that to recognize that your parents were narcissists?
1: Yes, I, I don't think we can really do this recovery unless we accept that something wasn't right, that this parent has a disorder, And that's why the person was treated that way, um, because they can't, people can't really move into um, the trauma work, the grief work, the, you know, rebuilding sense of self work um, if they don't really understand where it came from. they They just think there's something wrong with them.
0: Do you think the parents are even aware of their behavior?
1: I, I would say yes and no. I think there are some narcissists who who are, they know that they're hurting you. Um, They want to hurt people in some way because of their own issues, their own self-loathing. And then I think there are some, some traits that a narcissist doesn't recognize, like projection, because a narcissist doesn't deal with their own embrace and deal with their own feelings. They project them onto others. So... You know, if I'm the narcissistic mother and you're the daughter and I'm, I feel angry and I'm not dealing with my anger, I may be saying, Joan, why are you acting so angry today? <laughs> you know, they just, they project. And I'm, I'm not sure they're aware of those projections.
0: I know this is a, a strong word to use, but do you think that this is a form of child abuse?
1: Yes, I do. It's emotional and psychological abuse. And of course, narcissists can also be physically and sexually
0: abusive as well. So this type of abuse would go unrecognized. If a child were to go to a counselor and the parents look like they're these charming, wonderful parents, how does a child get to be believed in that situation?
1: That's a really good question. The the therapist has to know what to look for, you know, to see does this child, how comfortable is this child with expressing feelings? and really talking about what's going on with them. Can they even identify feelings, you know? Or are they coming from a family where you don't have feelings, you know, mm-hmm. because you're there to conscript to the mold of what the parent wants you to be. So this is why oftentimes people don't figure this out until they become adults. And, and you know, an interesting twist on that, if I might, um, a lot of times people come to treatment as adults after they have their first child. Because all of a sudden, they feel this incredible, unconditional love for this baby. You know, like I take a bullet for this child. And then it dawns on them like, well, who had that for
0: me? How does someone get through that?
1: Well, I divided this book into three parts. Um, And the third part, the first part is just understanding it all. The second part is understanding the effects it had. And then the third part of the book is the recovery program. And when I figured this out years ago, um, I I started working on a five-step recovery program that I just have enhanced greatly in the third part of this book. Um, So, you know, I see five steps to kind of working through this kind of trauma.
0: Would you briefly share those five steps with us?
1: The first step we call acceptance and grief. By grief, I mean embracing the trauma. So in step one, we're accepting that the parent had a disorder, wasn't okay, and then, then we have to work through the trauma and, and process and feel the trauma. And that takes quite a while to do. Um, then we work on separation individuation, which is step two. And what that means is we have to separate ourselves from this dysfunctional family web Um, psychologically not geographically and step three and of course there are a lot of things we do in all these steps. Um, Step three then is I didn't get to build my own sense of self as an adult child so step three is um, now I get to become my own authentic self. Then when we get to step four we deal with now how are we gonna deal with this family, our narcissistic parent, maybe the enabling parent, maybe the siblings. Um, Are we going to, we make a a contact decision, you know, are we going to go no contact because it was too toxic? Are we going to do what I call civil connect, which is superficial, but we still have a connection um, and we learn how to set boundaries um, so we can deal with them differently and not be so reactive to them. And then the last step is ending the, what I call the legacy of distorted love. Um, like, have I attracted narcissistic friends? You know, what's my value system in terms of parenting my children? And looking at love relationships and patterns and, you know, did, do, do I tend to be a dependent or a codependent in love relationships? And then finally, you know, looking at what, what traits did that person pick up themselves that they may want to really embrace and work on in recovery. So they're really working in the last step on ending the legacy.
0: Doctor, for someone who's listening to you right now and is suffering in pain from that type of upbringing, what do you say to him or her?
1: I say that, first of all, this isn't about hate, blame, anger. It isn't about going and attacking your parents. Um, I think this work is an inside job. I think we really have to embrace our own feelings about it and do our own recovery I think recovery is extremely important people can do it with the book because the third part has a lot of journaling and a lot of exercises to do on your own Um, and then I usually encourage people if they can work those steps with a therapist that's even better because then they get more validation You know, and that's because of so much self-doubt. The therapist can really validate for them and say, that's not okay. That was not okay.
0: So if someone is willing to do the work, there is hope for healing.
1: Absolutely. And I would want anyone listening to, to really know that even though the work is hard, recovery changes your life.
0: The book is, Will the Drama Ever End? Untangling and Healing from the Harmful Effects of Parental Narcissism. If you would like to learn more about Dr. McBride and her work, you can visit carolmcbridephd.com. That's K-A-R-Y-L, carolmcbridephd.com, or com. Doctor, thank you so much for spending this time with us.
1: Thank you, Joan. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
0: This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
2: Take action today. Head to BestPathForMe.com. Again, that's BestPathForMe.com. Did you know that Reiki can help lessen stress, depression, and anxiety? And are you aware that Reiki is now being used in hospitals as a complement to medicine? And it's because of its relaxing effects that Reiki has helped many overcome their health concerns. It was founded by a Buddhist monk named Mikao Yasui of Japan in the early 1920s, and his goal was to help heal broken people. Reiki comes from a universal life force energy which radiates pure love and this energy is then transferred through the Reiki practitioner's hands to the client. Reiki is considered a form of energy medicine which addresses the entire energy body called the chakras, which correlates to every system within our bodies from our pineal gland all the way down to our adrenals and spinal cord. So why not consider the many benefits of Reiki and how it can help impact the health of your body, mind, and spirit? Hi, this is Roxanne D'Angelo, a certified angelic crystal Reiki and magnified healing master teacher. For more information, you can reach me on the web at crystalclearenergies.com.
0: Put your heart and soul into writing a book. So how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life book club created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. It's time for Cheer Your Health. Joining us today to talk about mental health challenges this time of year is Darian Aleto, Chief Clinical Officer of Behavioral Health for Bergen Newbridge Medical Center. Welcome, Darian. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Darian, I hear so many people talking about how they're struggling right now. Why is the holiday season so challenging?
3: Happiest time of year, and while there's a lot of great things that happen during the holiday season, there's a lot of things get piled on top of all those great things during the holiday season. So there's a number of things that we have to deal with. We have to deal with the financial demands of the season, buying presents, making sure that we can, you know, throw parties, be part of white elephants that we normally have at work. Um, There is a harder work-life balance because there are so many celebrations we have to attend. There's so many errands we have to run. So the normal day-to-day work-life balance that we might experience throughout the year is corrupted. challenge because we don't really have the free time that maybe we normally have and for a lot of people the remi- the holidays are a reminder of you know loved ones that we've lost or maybe feeling isolated from maybe our family if there's a poor dynamic so it could be a real reminder of those things.
0: Do you think also what may come into play is that it's the end of the year and we kind of look back and, and say like why well, this really wasn't how I thought my life would be or I had hoped to have achieved more. And and do you think that that has an impact uh, as to why we get the blues at the end of the year? think so. It's
3: really a time of reflection at the end of the year. Like you said, we reflect back on the things we wanted to accomplish at the beginning of the year and how things have turned out during the end. Maybe we look back at the things that have happened during the year and maybe they weren't such great things and we think about how we responded to them or what we've gained, what we've lost. So that reflective time can be very difficult because sometimes it doesn't always meet our own expectations.
0: So we're having the holiday blues because of the loss of expectations the way we think things should be with family and celebrations and so forth. We're reflecting on Mm -hmm. the way our life had been playing out and we may not be happy with it so how do we take all yeah. of that then and go into a new year with realistic expectations and not taking all of those emotions with us
3: that's a really great question and i love that you said realistic expectations you know, because I think the number one thing people have going into these new year resolutions is unrealistic expectations like they want to lose you know 20 pounds in two weeks or we want to you know learn a new language in a month and that's not that's not realistic so we really need to take time to identify our goals, and how we can make them manageable by making smaller goals that add up to bigger ones. I think so many people lose sight of the fact that small victories lead up to big victories. So really, we want to be mindful of what are the goals I'm setting, or what are the things I want to accomplish, and how can I do them in a realistic timeline? Because we have our day-to-day lives. We have work. We have family. We have other responsibilities. So sometimes those things things don't always allow for us to accomplish things in the timeline that maybe we'd like to accomplish them. Um, But it's important to also be creative and compassionate to ourselves you know commitment to self-care is so important but self-growth is just as important and those two things co-align
0: so you explained to us some very valid reasons as to why we may be feeling depressed or lonely or sad this time of year but how long should that last in the new year If, if we start to have these feelings and they're lingering when do we know that it might be something more
3: I'm probably unbiased as a therapist, and I would say that any time that we feel that there's a disruption in our day-to-day or any time we feel that maybe we just need to talk to somebody is a good time to seek help. Um, maybe the more larger things we need to focus on is we notice a disruption of our day-to-day life. We're not able to handle our daily tasks. We're not able to manage our daily responsibilities. Maybe we have an increase of unhealthy behaviors, such as maybe, you know, we're not focusing on taking care of ourselves the same way. Or maybe we're utilizing substances in a way that's unhealthy. Or maybe we just feel overwhelmed and we just can't process the things that are being put on our plate. But any is an okay time to seek help. But these might be some of the more, you know, the red flags, the glaring red flags that would say like, okay, now we need to maybe seek someone for professional help.
0: I know for myself, Darren, when I went through a lot of loss and, and experienced grief, one of the things that I noticed was when I spent time on social media, I found myself comparing my life to other oh. people. And it really didn't serve me well because when I didn't have the family that I wanted, And I looked at someone else's Christmas celebration, you know, it looks like everyone else is having that hallmark moment. So how important is it to our mental health that we don't make those comparisons? It is so important that we remember that social media is a
3: highlight reel. It is not the full picture. Um, so I think it's very important that we be very, very mindful that the things that we're seeing online are in a true representation of what's going on in someone's life. So it's so important to remember that just because someone likes someone's life looks different than ours doesn't always mean that it's better. And everyone's life is going to look different and success is going to look different and happiness is going to look different for everybody. So it's important to be aware of what does it mean to you to be happy, to be successful? What's your definition? Because I think we often get caught up in the traditional or societal definitions when we don't look at what's for us because everyone's is going to be different.
0: And Darian, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and the programs at Newbridge? Absolutely. They can go to our website, newbridgehealth.org, and it has a full listing of all of our inpatient and outpatient
3: treatment programs. And we have a wide array of services that service children uh, ages five and up. We have no max age, and we have services for um, individuals who might be
0: dealing with substance misuse or if they're just dealing with mental health challenges. We have all of our listings on our website. And once again, that site is newbridgehealth.org. Darren, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative while on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in.
2: The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications.